0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Self has many definitions. 90% of the cells in our bodies are bacteria. We are in many respects more non-self than self. In his new book, Lousy Sex, Creating Self in an Infectious World, Gerald Callahan explores the science of self, illustrating the immune system's role in forming individual identity. Blending scientific essay with deeply personal narratives, he uses microbiology and immunology to explore a new way to answer the question, who am I? Through stories about the sex lives of wood lice, the biological advantages of eating dirt, the question of immortality, the relationship between syphilis and the musical genius of Beethoven, he creates another way, a chimeric way of seeing ourselves. Gerald Callahan is a professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology and the Department of English at Colorado State University. He's author previously of uh, Spontaneous Human Combustion, What Immunology Can Teach Us About Self-Perception, Infection, The Uninvited Universe, and River Odyssey, A Story of the Colorado Plateau and other works. Gerald Callahan joins me from uh, Fort Collins. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. Very interesting book. Um, with that provocative title, which I guess you could pronounce l- lousy sex. You talk about Correct. the sex lives of uh, woodlice. Uh, this question of, of identity, who are we, of self? And, and you say this, this began as so you were uh, reading an essay on the sex lives of woodlice.
1: Now, one of the things that I found fascinating about that first essay was this, this, this one of the basic ideas that we 've been taught all of our lives is that in in species that reproduce sexually like humans, there ought to be about an equal number of males and females. but it turns out that 's not true in wood lice at all they 're almost all females, and uh, that t- It turns out that in this case, what determines <clears throat> the sex of the offspring ultimately <clears throat> excuse me is an infection, a bacterial infection, and if you treat wood lice. With antibiotics, they'll begin to produce equal numbers of males and females. And I thought, gosh, that suggests that maybe some of the very, the most basic things I've been told about the way humans are in this world doesn't fit very well with the way the rest of the world is. And that started me exploring the idea of the role of infection in determining not only sex ratios but in who we are.
0: You have a whole chapter on that. That's very fascinating. We'll get into that. Uh, you and then you have personal stories, very interesting. Yeah. You, you sort of it's a mosaic, uh, trying to uh, determine w- w- what makes me me and uh, what makes you you. Um, I wonder if we, we could uh, begin with uh, having you read uh, a little bit here. This is uh, from the uh, origins where I comes from, and uh, this is on uh, just the over the page from that from that beginning. Are eyes born, or like memories, do we gather eyes from the world around us? That, that passage, and over to the next page.
1: Okay. Are eyes born, or like memories, do we gather eyes from the world around us and, and add or subtract from the memory day? And what are the smallest pieces of eyes we cannot do without? For most of the first year of a baby's life, it cannot distinguish itself from its mother. For that year, we is I. Clearly, at the outset, we are more and less than I. Constructing an eye takes a lifetime. We build those eyes from bits and pieces of the people and the world around us. Through an immunologist's eyes, eye building looks a lot like a cross between sculpting mud pies and making powdered donuts. Mud, dirt, soil, grime, and dust hold one of the keys to selfhood. It is literally true that we are dirt and unto dirt we shall return. But that is not just because the soil feeds the plants and animals that feed us and that we will one day feed and return nor is it because some god cursed us with mortality. Soil holds bacteria and we cannot construct an eye without bacteria. No organism on earth has had more biological success than bacteria. Bacteria outstrip every other living thing in numbers, in mass, in distribution, and in variety. And because they came first, and because there are so many of them in so many places, bacteria have extorted an agreement from all the rest of us. That agreement reads something like, live with bacteria or don't live at all. That agreement binds all of us. And in this world, we must live as bacterial symbionts, sharing our lives with unimaginable numbers of these creatures. And the whole thing begins when our mothers intentionally infect us during labor, and it ends only when flame or prey consume the last of us. In truth, we literally gather ourselves from the world around us. We extract bits of eye from the dirt we eat, from the people and the pets we touch, from lovers and from the food we eat, from doorknobs and church pews, from computer keys and borrowed books. And those infections change each of us, make us who we are, the pointillist eye. The long story of the human genome lays it all out. Humans would not be human without our infections. Ultimately, the search for self knowledge leads to our infections past and present
0: i 'd like to parallel this uh, as you do in the very next chapter. experience with your mother your, your mother had dementia at the
1: end yes, of yes, she did
0: uh, maybe tell us uh, that story that you 're deciding you have a group of you there you 're deciding whether to to put her in a home or not
1: right and the thing that <clears throat> in that particular situation, what my mother did in response there was my wife and I and my father were there as well as a couple of people that were coming from the home to assess her for qualification for their facility and she actually began undressing herself. She was wearing a, a new bra that she was delighted to show everyone and I began to realize that this was no longer my mother as I had known her. That's the sort of thing she would have never done and both literally and figuratively there were layers being peeled away from her as the dementia took more and more away from her and what and began like i said literally with her clothing but i became i began to see more and more basic aspects of self as more of the fine structure that we put up between us and the rest of the world disappeared from her
0: and this is something i think a lot of us have wondered about dementia takes away um, memory takes away personality. Even it does strip away layers.
1: Right, it does. And and the, one of the, the the whole idea of self, I think, is is an extraordinary one which we rarely talk about. Even though for each of us, it's clearly the most important thing in the world. Um, but but watching a person with dementia, you begin to see, or at least I began to see, how much of it has, requires a high level of maintenance. And how much of it we may not even be aware of, um, the way that we smooth over the gaps and fill in the holes along the way to give ourselves a sort of false sense of continuity and, and present what is an acceptable self to a lot of the rest of the world. And dementia, you know, shuts all that down. My mom became completely at peace being just who she was, uh, but it was not who she had been and it was not what I think at that time I wanted her to be.
0: Mm. So that's one of the key questions, isn't it? How, how much of this sense of self comes from inside us and how much is, is out there?
1: Right, I completely agree with that. I, there is a great deal, when we are born, we are given not only you know 23 chromosomes from our moms and our dads, we're given a set of stories about what it means to be a human being on this planet. And I think those stories are as important in forming a self as the genes are. And that's why if you look at different societies where sometimes those stories are different, there are very different concepts of self. Often, in, in, certain, in some Asian societies, the self is seen as an illusion, and it's seen more as a communal self than it is as an individual self like we do here. So that we, we gather a lot of ourselves from the world around us, both physically and in, um, through story.
0: That idea of a communal self, that, that gets into, uh, you're very interested, of course, in immunology, and, right. and, and that has to do with self. Our immune system protects what is self inside from what is not self outside.
1: Right. If you ask most scientists, I think, and most people, uh, whether they're trained in science or not, where self resides, I think most people would say somewhere in the nervous system, usually in the brain. And, but the, the interesting thing to me as an immunologist was that I realized early on that there's a whole other system that seems to be preoccupied with self, and that's the immune system. And the evidence that it's essential, that it's the only reason we actually exist as individual beings, is what happens to a person who loses his or her immune system. And currently, the most, the way that occurs most often is through HIV infection followed by AIDS. And the HIV the virus just dismantles the immune system, and what happens abruptly is where there was a person a short while ago, there's now a community of living things. Bacteria, viruses, parasites, funguses. And the person just sort of merges in with the rest of the living world and disappears as an individual. So without immune systems, the rest of it
0: becomes trivial. Hmm. So how, how important is that division then?
1: Uh, well, I think that it, all, essentially all living things on this planet maintain that division. And what it allows us to do, I guess, because I've wondered why, what the advantages of cells, what the biological advantage is. And certainly one thing is, is it allows for the sort of specialization that we can do as individuals that we might not be able to do as a single living entity. So we get multicellular organisms, and then you can have eyes and ears and do other things. But in order to do that and do it effectively, I have to be able to determine what is me so that I only communicate with me, and then what is not me because parasitism has been a long and proud way of life, and I need to be able to identify and destroy those things to continue to exist as an individual.
0: Hmm. Uh, and so yeah, you, and you write, uh, you're referring to it right there, that uh, you know bacteria, single-celled organisms, at some point there began to be specialization. Right. And that led to uh, an organism which could be called self. Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. I mean, I, I think even, even now, maybe with bac- most bacteria have some way of recognizing not-self and destroying it. But early on, there was, I think, as you said, it wasn't until we began to get multicellular and we needed to communicate from cell to cell that there had to be some way of saying, this is one of my cells and that's not one of my cells. And that was perhaps the most primitive form of self was that simple: what's me and what's not me. I mean, even if it's as primitive as knowing that uh, that food is not self and self is not food. Mm.
0: Yeah, that, I guess that's the original division. Uh, you, right. Uh, I don't eat I. <laughs> exactly, because otherwise I disappears very quickly. Hmm. Um. So you you uh, list a couple of you know several definitions of self. Uh, Merriam yeah. Webster: the entirety of an individual. Uh, the realization or embodiment of an abstraction? Uh, it sounds like you, you, you're not wild about that definition.
1: <laughs> no, and, and one of the things, I, I teach a course called Construction of Self, and I, I'm pretty certain that there's really no satisfactory definition to self. I mean, the, immunolo- the immunological one is perhaps the simplest one to work with, which is the ability at some level to distinguish between self and not self and to continue to exist as an individual organism, but that's not very satisfactory when we start to think about cells that are as complex as those that human beings have and a variety of other animals. So I I sort of think of cells in some sense like maybe eyes, where very primitive eyes were just little spots that could detect shadow maybe and provide some protection that way. But later on, eyes became much more complex and to the point that where we even can communicate with our eyes beyond just being able to see and perceive and I sort of think maybe cells have evolved in a similar way that they began with the very simple biological necessity of being able to identify not self and protect self, but they've evolved into much more complex things whereas I said with with once we invented language, I think our stories and our words became a huge part of ourselves. And our communities became a part of ourselves. Some people probably even think their cars and televisions are part of themselves, you know. Mm.
0: This becomes a very complex uh, question. Of course, you, you treat this in the book. I wonder, uh, coming back to your mother's uh, dementia, what yes. uh, you said you, you realized that its layers of self were being peeled away. Uh, right. So what, what then remained, do you think? I, I,
1: the, the most basic rule in evolution, I think, is eat, don't get eaten, and reproduce. And at the very end, she still was very aware of herself, and she still really enjoyed eating. She never lost her interest in food. And she still was very aware of herself as a sexual being. And that, that seemed to be at the core of the, all of this. Once the onion layers of the onions were peeled away till there was just the very core of it left, that was mostly what she was, what we might consider sort of animal instincts, the things that, that have gotten us this far um, throughout evolution. That was what remained the drive to, to continue to exist eat
0: reproduce and whenever you think about self it, it takes you if you think long enough about it to the question of immortality you treat this in the book what, what, yeah. what are your thoughts there does self remain does self continue
1: well i mean i think there, there are two different answers to that question one is I think because I'm a scientist, first and foremost, I, I think that the things that, that... That that question about what is the smallest piece of self that you wouldn't be you without, for me, it's... It, it, everything I lose or acquire changes who I am. So when I die, I, everything that was just there is still there. It just is changing form. And so I think that I that what was me will continue to exist, whether it will continue to exist in a way in in which I am aware of it, as I was before, I don't know, of course. But but the idea of immortality, it, it may be achievable without dying, even. I mean, it was Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my works, I want to achieve immortality through not dying. <laughs> and it may be that that, that we have acquired death, as a biological adaptation because we are beings that put great demands on our environment. um, It may be that if we were much longer lived, we would fairly quickly um, eliminate what we need in the environment and no longer be able to grow and reproduce and do all of those things. And that because there are essentially immortal beings on this planet, some of them big and complex beings, most, and most of us have met one. Although we don't realize it, uh, in Utah there's a creature by the name of Pando, um, which is the largest living organism and probably over a million years old, and only at risk for death from either fire or disease. Pando's uh, a grove of aspen trees, and aspens. In aspens, there appears to be no natural death. Every every individual tree in a grove is a part of the same individual. So when one tree dies, the individual goes on living. It would be like I don't know when we trim our fingernails or something. Mm-hmm. So the evidence is that they, they may not die at all from natural causes. And there are lots of other plants that are very long-lived. There's mammals that live much longer than we do. So it, it appears that that death is something that has evolved over time, in one sense, to protect us from ourselves, from, from overproducing, destroying our environment, and then disappearing as a species.
0: Mm. Uh, the, the idea of Pando uh, gets us back to this communal idea of self,
1: right? That, that very interesting idea. But, and
0: go ahead. But but isn't that uh, sort of uh, contradictory? Or maybe I just have uh, you know that uh, very fixed idea of self as as me, and, and and not the commune.
1: The difference between a Pando saying that maybe a communal self like ants is that Pando is just, most of what you see above the soil is just little pieces of the whole creature. <clears throat> and when one piece disappears, it appears that an individual has died. But as I said, it would be like perhaps you losing a finger or something less than that, that the, that the being, the individual being, goes on even though a piece of it has disappeared. Hmm. But there may be true communal selves, like I said, like ants and, and honeybees. I mean, even though there are queens, they don't issue orders and tell the rest of the creatures what to do. They seem to have a sense of acting almost as a unit, and there, it may be that in some species that the, the idea of self extends beyond the individual, and in, and incorporates the whole community. Hmm.
0: And I suppose, uh, perhaps, I'm just uh, betraying my my Western, uh, you know, idea and, and background. Uh, in the West, we have this idea of the rugged individual, In the, in right. the Eastern cultures, it's uh, it's more of an acceptance of communal way of living
1: right and I think it's interesting to contemplate that fact I mean is we think of self at least I always do as a very fixed sort of thing and that not only would everyone have pretty much the same concept of self but that the concept of self would have probably always been the same and yet there's evidence that neither of those things are true that again as I said those stories that we get that we get from our parents that we get from television newspapers books etc those stories can make a big difference. So there's evidence that among the Greeks, they felt like that the gods were largely responsible for individual behavior, and that there was little self-control and self-determination. And as you said, there's evidence in Asian societies that among some uh, like Buddhist and Taoist philosophies, there is a belief that the self, at, at least in the philosophical sense, is an illusion, and that it's something that we create. So it varies a lot depending on how we learn to think about
0: self. We're talking with Gerald Callahan today. He is a professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology, and the Department of English at Colorado State University. That's a dual appointment. It's very important in, in his work. We're going about that from his book and this idea of self. He says, self has many definitions. Ninety percent of the cells in our bodies are bacteria. We are, in many respects, more non-self than self. And we're talking about his new book, Lousy Sex, Creating Self in an Infectious World, where uh, Gerald Callahan explores the science of self, illustrating the immune system's role in forming individual identity. You're welcome to join us in this conversation, if you'd like, at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. This uh, whole project started as Gerald Callahan contemplated the sex lives of wood lice. We'll get into talking about that. Very interesting story following the break.
1: Senegal is the source
0: of much of West Africa's most melodic and inspired music. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore some of the rich musical traditions and hear contemporary voices. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Senegal, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday nights at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher, with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City. (laughs) www.bard.org Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about self. What makes I, I, and you, you? Um, This uh, is an important question, of course, and a question which uh, Gerald Callahan has contemplated. And uh, he uh, treats this at the intersection of science and art. In fact, he has a uh, dual uh, appointment Uh, in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology, and the Department of English at Colorado State University. And he is author of Between XX and XY, Intersexuality and Myth of Two Sexes, Faith, Madness, and Spontaneous Human Combustion, What Immunology Can Teach Us About Self-Perception, Infection, The Uninvited Universe, and River Odyssey, A Story of the Colorado Plateau. Uh, self, he writes, has many definitions. Ninety percent of the cells in our bodies are bacteria. We are, in many respects, more non-self than self. His new book is Lousy Sex: Creating Self in an Infectious World, where he explores the science of self, illustrating the immune system's role in forming individual identity, blending scientific essay and deeply personal narratives. Uses microbiology and immunology to explore a new way to answer the question, "Who am I?" And uh, through stories about the sex lives of woodlice, we'll get into that next, the biological advantages of eating dirt, the question of immortality, the relationship between syphilis and the musical genius of Beethoven. He creates another way, a chimeric way of seeing ourselves. As I said, he's a professor at uh, Colorado State uh, University. Uh, This book, by the way, is uh, published by uh, University Press of uh, Colorado and has just come out. Gerald Callahan, looks like we lost you there for a minute, but you're back. I, I'm, I was lost but now I'm found <laughs> very good <laughs> um before we get into the uh, sex lives of woodlice more interesting than you might think um, I want to talk about you your the prologue to the book and you you end this you come back to it in your epilogue talk about Leonardo.
1: Well, you know one of the things that that has happened to science in the in the fairly recent past is it it has Fractured and separated itself from some other disciplines, particularly philosophy and art. And Leonardo was a great example of someone who who could pull both together, <clears throat> both the science and the art. And the 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 things that we have till today from Leonardo that are that are so um, the, the proof of that are the great drawings that he did, both his drawings of machines and the anatomical drawings that he did of. Um, the bodies that he dissected of the human body in particular and one of the things that, that is interesting is that he was known for his how meticulous he was in his description of his dissections and, and in his records of them and yet when you look at his some of the anatomy <clears throat> excuse me of his dissections you can see that there are things that today we would say were wrong that just weren't there things that he drew in ducks that went from one place to another and other things like that and now we would say he was wrong but the interesting thing is that he was bringing to the table the basically the same thing and a, a pathologist brings to the dissection table today to see a good set of eyes a good set of language and the ability to observe and write and yet he appears to be wrong the interesting thing is that it appears that we, at that point in time, the stories that were told emphasized different things, and that Leonardo saw what he expected to see. In spite of um, what we imagine would be objective observations, the stories he brought with him to that dissecting table were very different. And often those stories did things like more emphasize the similarities between, say, men and women than the differences, which is what we focus on now. So I was struck by that that how much these stories I have influenced the way the world appears to me. And as I said before even the way I appear to me seems to be variable depending on the stories and what I how I think things should be rather than perhaps how things are.
0: And you seem to lament this uh, you might call it a divorce between well, science and I, art.
1: I do. I I think that uh, like on campus now you know we have a college of um, veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, and we have a College of Liberal Arts. And the interaction between the two is not great, and yet I think that poets and scientists are often trying to answer the exact same questions. We have different approaches, but we lose someone in our life. Someone dies, like my mother, for example. That, As a writer, what I want to do is explore my experience of that. As a scientist, what I want to do is get at the basis of what, what made that happen, those aren't so very different goals. Um, And I think that the the importance of language in the sciences and the importance of science to the liberal arts is um, irrefutable. And yet we rarely communicate with one another in a way in which I think we could both learn. That's one thing that I've been, I feel very lucky to have been able to accomplish this joint appointment with the English department and with the pathology department because it allows me to bridge these two great disciplines and to learn from both of them
0: so do you think this will become more common do you think there's progress being made I, I, my perception is that you know you go into the laboratories you go into the, the, the science and the, the they don't want to hear much from the liberal arts
1: yeah I agree with that I I don't think I, I'm hoping that 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 some of the things that I do and others do may remind people of the importance of trying to reestablish the Union but I agree with you. I think that in the sciences, there is little emphasis on the importance of liberal arts. Scientists um, must use language. They sort of distrust it. But in one sense, you know, the the scientific discoveries also require the discovery of new language, the creation of new words, words like even DNA or transposon or mm, the name of a new bacterium. I mean, all of that requires language. And and the people who know who have studied language the most carefully are rarely involved, and yet it could be, I think science could be so much more powerful and so much more widely accessible if we were to think more about the language. And after all, it's the public that pays for our endeavors. It would be, it's, I think it's almost imperative that we begin to communicate with people more broadly, and that requires reuniting a bit of art and science.
0: So the, the, that's where you think the, the, there could uh, be a start to the, yes. that language. What about the essence of it? You, you described Leonardo. He, he brought his perceptions and he you know, put them into his science, indistinguishable science and art, right. w- which would uh, make a scientist very distrustful in today's day and age.
1: I agree with you. I, there, there is a belief that as a scientist we can avoid the sort of squishy things that are related to art and literature. <clears throat> that I think leads us into a an area where we can inadvertently do more harm than good because we believe that perhaps we can convey our ideas without them being harmed by the language that carries them. And that's not possible. Language plays an enormous role. The words we choose change everything. And there is no way that we can do, we can use words without the impact of those words. And not being aware of that Uh, allow, I think, interferes with our ability to do what we would like to do. I think that if we could interact more with people who, like I said, have have studied language more deeply than we have and come to a different sort of appreciation of language, we could communicate science better, we could do science better. Hmm. I
0: wonder if we could uh, get into uh, talking about this, and this, uh, I'll admit, kind of makes me uncomfortable, this this idea that... uh, 90% we're 90% of our cells in our bodies are bacteria we're, we're in some respects more non-self than self and again talking about the sex lives of 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 woodlice there, there's a bacteria that's taken over the sex lives of of woodlice
1: yeah there there is apparently at one point in time and it's not just woodlice i'd like it's it's a significant proportion of uh, woodlice isopods but also a significant portion of of insects are infected with this same bacterium and and this, and, and Express the same skewed sex ratio, where most of them are females. Somewhere, once upon a time, I guess, woodlice were reproducing and they were making number equal numbers of males and females, and everything was fine. And then they got an infection with a bacterium, and this bacterium is kind of a big bacterium, and it it it, it only it needs space inside the cell to move from animal to animal. And this is this this one this bacterium isn't like one that we might think of like salmonella or something where it can be picked up by someone else and consumed, it has to pass directly inside a cell from one animal to another animal. And the only time that sexually reproducing species pass cells from one another is during reproduction. It's sperm. Well, it turns out that sperm is too small for these bacteria to get inside of. So any male offspring or a dead end, the bacterium will not move beyond that male. So what the bacterium has evolved over time is a way to suppress males. In some species of wood lice, there are no males at all. In some species of wood lice, there are very few males. And in some species of wood lice, what they have done is actually take... In wood lice, it's a little bit different than humans. So humans are XX and XY. These are ZW and ZZ, and the ZZs are the males and the ZWs are the females. And what they do is they just take the ZZ um, inf, uh, you know, zygotes and force them to become males, by, excuse me, females, by changing the way hormones get pr- produced and other things. So this bacterium has basically just completely hijacked the biology of wood lice and pushed them all along the female line. And so it's females producing females producing females. It's just it's a process called parthenogenesis where they, they don't, it doesn't require males any longer. And as a result, this species is very different than what we think about when we think about species that have males and females.
0: What would, what would you know, bring this uh, in our face, maybe? What, what would happen if this had happened to or would happen to humans? You know,
1: it's a, it, one of the things that's curious, and, and it's, a, it's a question that's never been fully answered, I don't think, is why, what's the advantage to sex? Why is it useful to have males and females? If you want to just look at how to produce the, the biggest number of one species, they should all be females because then one produces a child. Males are kind of expensive. You know, we eat and take up space and do all that, but we don't produce offspring. So, some people have argued that it's for, for variability in the offspring so that we're, so we're better protected biologically for infectious diseases. But here we have a species, this whole species of woodlice that are terribly successful, and they're all females. And something like 17% or 20% of all insects. And insects, there are more, all, most animals are insects. They're the biggest numbers of animals, and they're all females. So it sort of raises the question I mean, I don't know what would happen if we switched to, if we got an infection like that and we were simply dominated by females and reduce numbers of males, it would certainly change, it would force us to change the way we think about things, and it would, I think, have lots of interesting, I'd love to study it if I could and Mm -hmm. see what would happen, because I think it would be fascinating to see. As a male, I think I'd prefer it didn't happen in the near future. Mm.
0: Yes, uh, I agree with you
1: there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Gender is a big part of uh, the way we see ourselves, a big big part of our identity, a big part of self, right? So that would definitely change.
1: Right, absolutely. I mean, if you ask someone who you can't see who they are, one of the first things they say is, I'm a man or I'm a woman. And so it's a huge part of, of our identity. And it's um, there's a <clears throat> one of the essays in the book, the one called The Opposite of Sex, de- delves into whether or not those concepts about sex are very accurate as well, that there's just men or women or can human beings be other things and, and um, what sort of... Up- possibilities that opens for us in the way we think about ourselves. But I agree with you. It's a huge part of gender. And um, we get, you know, the moment the the doctor says, well, the first question people ask when a baby's born is, what is it, boy or girl? And once the doctor says it's a boy or a girl, a whole aspect of our lives are laid out for the rest of the time, and there's not much we can do about it. If you have a great set of parents, they will tell you you can become whatever you want, but not the opposite sex. And yet, in animals, among other animals, it happens all the time. Mm.
0: We're talking with Gerald Callahan today. He has a dual appointment in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology, and the Department of English, at Colorado State University. He's the author of a new book, "Lousy Sex: Creating Self in an Infectious World." He says ninety percent of the cells in our bodies are bacteria. We are, in many respects, more non-self than self. He's interested in this idea of self. What uh, creates this identity? And he, he gives us uh, science, also some very personal stories. We've talked about his uh, mother and her dementia. We're talking about there's a very interesting chapter uh, which runs in parallel, the story of the, the doomed uh, trip to the South Pole of uh, uh, Robert, yes. is it Robert Scott? Yes. Yes. Robert I, I, Alkin, Scott. Uh, and uh, and uh, experiences with his father uh, in, his, in his 90s. Uh, we'll talk about that. And... Uh, Professor Callahan made reference to this very interesting chapter the opposite of sex is this the one with you with the friend your friend who's a hermaphrodite correct yes very interesting we'll get into talking about that uh, following a break On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top, each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9, on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Carl Breitenbach, practicing evidence-based family medicine at Basin Clinic in Vernal since 1987, with emphasis in complete family health, including obstetric and pediatric care. Information is at basinclinic.com. Glad you're listening to Access You Time. Tom Williams. We're uh, talking with Gerald Callahan, author of several books, the most recent of which uh, published in July. Uh, Lousy Sex, Creating Self in an Infectious World. Gerald Callahan is a professor of microbiology, immunology, and pathology. He's also a professor in the Department of English at Colorado State University. He believes uh, he, he would like to see a return, at a remarriage of uh, science and art, and uses that approach in this book. Um, a kind of a mosaic approach to uh, what makes I I and you you what uh, what's the separation what is uh, that sense of self we were talking before the break about uh, this very important idea of gender and that uh, I think you say in the book 65 percent of all species in the world of uh, don't have this gender. it's all or mostly all females as part yeah, of I
1: don't know the exact percentage but you're right there are far more uh, organisms on this planet that are e- that are either capable of alternating between male and female or don't use male and female at all
0: and this because of a bacterial infection and you do you say that we'd, we, we all of us uh, ha- have to make this accommodation with bacteria
1: yeah one of the things you know as you said when we talk about the fact that 90% of the cells in the space that we call that I call me <clears throat> are bacteria <clears throat> and that's more non-self than self the, the issue is really, is that non-self, or, or do I have to re- change the way I think about self? When Once we appeared on this planet, once all multicellular life appeared on the planet, <clears throat> bacteria were everywhere. Everyone had to make an accommodation. If you were going to survive in this world, it had to be the, with the participation of bacteria. And they, they interact with us in all kinds of different ways. You can actually, in mice, you can change their behavior by changing their bacteria. So I think that they may be a bigger part of ourselves than we realize, and that we may have to, rather than think of ourselves as being partly non-self, begin to think of bacteria as being part of self. Hmm. So I, I'm beginning to think about life a lot differently than I did before I began these studies.
0: <laughs> oh, and as I said before, that makes me a little uncomfortable, and I guess <laughs> uh, I don't know. What about this idea of, um, you know, when I think of self, I, I think in more of an abstraction. I think more, I guess you know, apart from the body.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's very traditional, and I think especially in the West. And I think it began with people like Descartes, who said, you know, I think, therefore I am, meaning that his thoughts were something basically different than everything else. And often I think we think of self, maybe even in the context of soul, as something that is separate from the material parts of our body. But again, as a scientist, one of the things I realized is that I is that we have this very basic aspect of self, which is the immune system. And the changing our biology can dramatically change ourselves, at least as perceived by others and by ourselves. I mean, things as simple as, say, antidepressants. Antidepressants alter the, what happens in the synapses in nerves, and people can become less depressed. They can get over anxiety problems and other things. So here's a chemical change that results in a very straightforward behavioral change. So I I personally think that it's it's complex but it's all in our chemistry. Hmm.
0: And you're are are you coming to terms with this idea of 90% of your body being bacteria the more non-self than self are you are you changing the this idea of self? Uh,
1: you, I you know that's a good question and I'd have to say um the answer is probably not yet but I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. But I think the the experience is a little bit like the experience that sometimes is talked about that can be achieved through things like Zen in the sense that a lot of ideas about what, who I am and what I am are beginning to crumble. I, I'm not certain I've come up with alternatives that I'm completely happy with, but I can no longer rely on the old concept that I'm this self-contained unit wandering around, and I'm not affected by other things. Every time I shake someone's hand, every time I take hold of a doorknob, I pick up something and I leave something behind, and the next person picks that up, and there's this constant commerce that's going on between all of us, as well as with trees and dirt and other things. And so I begin to see myself more as a process than a thing. a thing. Mm.
0: And uh, you also say that we we tend to think of ourselves as uh, being uh, very much our genes, right? Uh, we we are right. our genes, we are our chromosomes. This is right. a quote from the book: <laughs> "Genes by themselves don't mean squat," you say. <laughs>
1: it's very true I mean the thing is is that we we talk about the, the these what genes do but that you can you know DNA is very inert stuff you can take it and you can bury it in the soil 100 years later come back dig it up and it's still pretty much intact I mean you can see that with mummies and other things that people are recovering DNA from so for anything to happen it requires a lot more than DNA so the genes by themselves aren't capable of anything and the whole process of going from in one sense, it's like saying you know the blueprints built the building. They didn't. It required carpenters and electricians, and plumbers, and steel workers, and all the rest of that. And the same is true for us. There's a lot of other stuff involved that's only beginning to become apparent. Um, and we have. It's clear that we have focused way too closely simply on the the, D, the code that's in the chromosomes itself. But even in the chromosomes, about 90 percent of the DNA we carry around with us is actually viral DNA not human DNA. Hmm. And we still have active infections that we, that we acquired when we were still in the trees and that we pass on to all of our offspring.
0: We have a, an email, by the way, you can reach us by email at upraccess at gmail.com. The phone number is 1-800-826-1495. Our guest is Gerald Callahan. The book is Lousy Sex, Creating Self in an Infectious World. Here's what uh, Steve in Beaver Dam, Arizona says. Your conversation with Professor Callahan is a fascinating study of how the biology that we, those of us who are old enough, were taught in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s has been thoroughly upended. In his book, Parasite Rex, Carl Zimmer posits that parasites, of all things, are such important drivers of evolution that the panoply of species now living, including humans, would not exist without them. He, uh, in parentheses, Parasite, Parasite Rex is full of stories similar to your guest's research into the controlled bacteria have taken over reproductive habits of woodlice. Then along comes Epigenic and the realization that, yes, acquired characteristics can indeed be passed down from one generation to the next, contrary to one of the most canonic tenets of biology. Recently, we've learned that our bodies consist of more foreign DNA from bacteria and viruses than of DNA, which is our own. Now we're considering that the immune system may be as good a locus of self as the brain. This is Heady Stuff. Steve writes, your guest and his colleagues in physics, neuroscience, and now biology are all pushing ahead hard, blurring the borders between science and philosophy in completely unexpected ways.
1: Uh, I agree. I mean, I think he's absolutely right. And Parasite Rex is an interesting example of the same sort of thing. Um, There are some fantastic stories from uh, uh, animal studies in which parasites completely change animal behavior. in order to favor the reproduction of the parasite so for example there's that one parasite that's in cattle that ends up in ants and normally the ants are down low where the cattle don't eat them and and recycle the parasite so the parasite makes the ants go crazy they crawl up to the top of the grass clamp in their mandibles and hang there until morning which is the time during which the cattle graze and it completes the life cycle we would call that if we were talking about human behavior We'd say they're crazy and they have a death wish and other things, but in this case, we know it's, just, it's an infection. It has nothing to do with bad toilet training or anything like that. Mm-hmm.
0: So what do you make in the end of, of, of that idea? I guess it's similar to the idea that we have 90% of our body is, is bacteria. That the, 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 so, so much of that to which we... Previously maybe considered not-self is, maybe we have to consider that self.
1: Yeah, and let me, let me clarify one thing. Ninety percent by cell number of you is bacteria, but not ninety percent by mass. Mm, okay. Because bacterial cells are much smaller than human cells. So simply by mass, you're mostly human. By cell number, you're mostly bacteria. But anyway, I agree with you. I think that one of the things of what science is doing is forcing us to rethink concepts that we've had over generations about what it means to be a human being. One of the one of the things that I treasure most about my science experience is how it has changed the way I think about me. We often imagine that scientists are off in their ivory towers doing their research, and it may have implications for a new vaccine or a new drug or a new television, but we don't think about very often how much personal meaning it may have. And to me, what biology has accomplished in the recent past is to very much change the concept of a human being. And that's one of the things I want to try to share through my writing, is the different ways that we have to think about ourselves now because of what science has shown.
0: Uh, By the way, um, before the program, I I, uh, asked you to select a passage or two. I've neglected to, to turn to that. I wonder if there's a passage you'd like to read.
1: Yeah, there is one I'd like to read. <clears throat> this is um, you mentioned earlier about the idea of Beethoven and his uh, infections and whether or not he could have written the Ninth Symphony without being infected and this relates to that and it relates to my uncle Henry by the time I met Henry he was completely insane he couldn't speak in complete sentences he couldn't walk the 50 feet across our backyard without jerks and staggers sometimes he drooled <clears throat> Henry was living there at the VA hospital in Salt Lake City Every Sunday afternoon, my father would gather him up on our family's Ford station wagon and bring him out to our house in Bountiful for dinner. Henry seemed to like that. His eyes were still piercingly blue, his hair still blonde, though mottled with gray, and he still had the whippet-thin frame of a soldier, but the rest was no longer Henry. In spite of his peculiarities, maybe because of them, I enjoyed my uncle. He cursed and spat and wore soiled clothes, all of which I admired. But clearly something was different about Henry." Henry wasn't working alone either. <clears throat> the voices that rattled in Beethoven's deaf ears that night when he composed the Ninth Symphony in Vienna were not human voices. Mercury from the vapor baths for his lifelong syphilis silvered nearly every tissue in his body. Lead from his water or his knives and spoons was inside his neurons <clears throat> redirecting traffic. The most important, the syphilis bacterium itself, was in his brain and his spine playing its own music. Continual, bone-splintering pain worked at every nerve-ending as Beethoven sat down that evening. Before the Ninth Symphony was finished, each of the others had its say. The Ninth was a cooperative effort. A part of the same music played inside of Henry's head that day. I met him in Bountiful, a tune with a ragged edge. In its own way, Henry's craziness was nearly as perfect as Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I don't know if my uncle had ever heard of Beethoven, but a thing that had once been Ludwig's was now Henry's inside each of us a symphony is playing itself out syphilis is only one player in one of those symphonies but because of the shrill note this bacterium plays it gets a lot of attention and because of that the word infection carries its baggage like a handful of maggots it shouldn't infections make us who we are and connect us to one another in the most intimate of ways so both henry and beethoven had syphilis henry was contracted it during World War I before antibiotics were available and it, it dismantled him over time. But the idea of whether he could have been who he was and whether Beethoven could have written his Ninth Symphony without being infected, I think is an interesting thing to consider. And we recognize it when it's something big and overt like syphilis, but inside each of us, as this says, there's a symphony playing out, it involves our bacteria, our viruses, our cells, their cells, Lots of different instruments to, that come together to make a symphony that is each of us.
0: Here's a, uh, a related question that came in just right at the the right time. <laughs> thank you, thank you for this. Um, a caller uh, says uh, wants to talk. Uh, you talk about the relationship to pesticides and pharmaceuticals. Are we attacking ourselves?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think that one of the things that is so difficult to predict is the the consequences of altering an environment. Like I said, we are so intimately connected with one another and the other things around us through this symphony we were talking about that I think it's very difficult to use pesticides and other things with impunity. There's now evidence, for example, that people who were exposed to pesticides may be at greater risk for Parkinson's disease. In part, it may be because they altered the gut flora. There's evidence that we, because of our overuse of antibiotics, are at greater risk for autism, for asthma, for allergies, and for inflammatory bowel diseases. Mm. So, yeah, I think there is a risk.
0: Uh, we're uh, coming near the end of our conversation. I want to maybe take you to the epilogue. And, and you come back to this idea of uh, this marriage that used to be between science and art, which you, you lament that divorce. You're calling for a, a remarriage, I guess. And yeah. uh, you're, you're saying that poets and brain surgeons are, are asking the same questions.
1: I really think that that's true, as I, I mentioned briefly earlier, but at, at, at root, we're trying to explain a world that is inexplicable. It's so overwhelming, it is so magical, and so wondrous. And we are so frustrated by disease and death that has prompted great literature, it's also prompted great science. And I think that the role of language in the science has been critical, the role of science in the literature has been critical, and that this the divorce between the two has slowed the progress they would have made if we could get some sort of reunification of those two fields
0: together. And just uh, briefly, only a minute left, uh, you say, <clears throat> um, th- this, th- you quote a saying, we're limited only by our uh, own imaginations. Then you say that sort of that's true.
1: Yeah, it's sort of true because there, there probably is some things that we cannot even imagine. Um, um, J.B.S. Haldane, a famous um, geneticist, um, 18th century Uh, uh, 19th century said uh, the universe is not only queerer than we imagine it's queerer than we can imagine meaning that we have this belief perhaps that everything should make sense to us but we are after all only human Mm -hmm.
0: Gerald Callahan is author of a fascinating new book Lousy Sex, Creating Self in an Infectious World uh, where he explores the science of self, illustrating the immune system's role in forming individual identity. And uh, Gerald Callahan is a professor in two departments, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology, and Department of English at Colorado State University. Uh, Gerald Callahan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: It has been a pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much.
0: Coming up tomorrow, we'll uh, delve into Mormon history, a, a man you might call the Forrest Gump of Mormon history. Uh, that's Jacob Hamlin. Todd Compton has written a new biography, and we'll uh, get into a fascinating life tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join me then. For producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks you. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.